Let me ask you, what is the first thing that you would think of if I said Miami in the 80s? Drugs, probably. Yeah, cocaine. Nailed it. Sorry, Miami. There was a fascinating documentary um, that I've been dying to bring to the table. Just oh. timing has never been right, oh, and it is okay. all about how Miami got that reputation and how big of a deal it was and why it spawned such massive pop culture phenomena like Scarface and like Miami Vice. Kay, have you seen Cocaine Cowboys? Miami is a major transportation center and is easily reached by all forms of travel. The Latin American influence has given Miami a unique flavor. In the 70s, when I first came down here, everybody was smuggling pot in. The Colombians realized they had a gold mine here. Everybody that before was doing these pot things was now into doing cocaine. The Colombians threw a number at us. $3,000 a kilo. In the first trip, we got paid $1.2 million. Popularity, it began to shoot up. I had never seen so much cocaine in my entire life. I had lawyers, I had doctors. Somebody that could afford what it cost. About 800 an ounce. It was everywhere. Clubs, restaurants, it was just everywhere. They made far more money, the Colombians, in a far shorter time than the mafia ever dreamed. The Federal Reserve Bank in Miami generated a surplus of $5 billion. More money than all of the other Federal Reserve combined. Cocaine deaths in Dade County have now jumped to about two a week. Shotguns, Uzi, handguns. It was the beginning of a war. You have five people killed here, three people killed here. Mass murder. Miami was the most dangerous place on earth. They called them the cocaine cowboys. They called them the cocaine cowboys. Cocaine cowboys. This is why Miami is for you. Welcome back to K Have You Seen, the movie podcast with strong feelings and weak taglines. My name is Kyle. I'm Kari. Uh, thank you so much for joining us once again. If you are a new listener, be sure to check out our previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you found this episode. And whether you're a new listener or a longtime fan, we see you. Uh, please be sure to subscribe, comment, review, and uh, definitely follow us on Facebook and Instagram uh, for updates and uh, sweet extras between episodes. Uh, so, without further ado, let's get into our movie of the week. Billy Corbin's 2006 crime documentary, Cocaine Cowboys. Um, Kari, you've been to Miami before. I have, yes. Okay, what's your impression of the city? Um, I've mostly been there. I've been a couple times, but most of the time it was to visit my brother who went to college down there. And um, it's, I mean, it's lovely. It's beautiful. It rains every 12 hours. Yep. It's a bustling city, but I feel like it's bustling if you can speak Spanish. Like, there's no place for you right. if you are unilingual in Miami. Unless you're going to college. But right. It's, I mean, it's just, like, so unique. The colors, the, like, culture. It's just almost its own place within the U.S. And it within is, Florida, It especially. is objectively its own place in it the United is, States. That's true. Uh, place. Yeah. Um, and by extension, how familiar were you with, like, the more sordid history mm. of, of Miami? Not super from, I mean, I've like seen parts of Scarface. If mm -hmm. you may be aware, I don't watch very, very long movies often. Right. <laughs> so I've not seen the whole thing. But, you know, it's, you, I didn't know anything specific. Mm -hmm. I didn't relate Miami to cocaine specifically, oh, but I did okay. know it had like, you know, there was some drug culture that was some, you know, South American crime rings that were active there. That's about it. Got it. Okay. 
So now, since this was your first viewing of this film, would you be so kind as to kind of give us a brief summary of what the movie is about in your own words? So the movie is about how it, it tracks like a decade-long history, would you say? Approximately. Of the rise and fall of the drug trade, the cocaine trade specifically in Miami and We'll get into this later, just the storytelling of it, but basically gets in through very specific people who played a pretty huge part in it and uses their stories in addition to kind of archival and bigger political narratives to talk about just how this one drug brought ungodly amounts of money to specific people and also to Miami as a city, how it, Miami's infrastructure during that time was really built up on the cocaine trade. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and yeah, definitely. And the, um, the synopsis from the filmmakers is, uh, in the 1980s, ruthless Colombian cocaine barons invade my, invaded Miami with a brand of violence unseen in this country since the Prohibition era Chicago, and it put the city on the map. Cocaine Cowboys is the true story of how Miami became the drug, murder, and cash capital of the United States, told by the people who made it all happen. Um, so yeah, pretty much it. Um, it's, uh, it's a documentary that, you know, it's, it came out in 2006. Um, I feel like it's kind of coasted under the radar. You don't really hear a lot of people like mentioning it. It didn't make a huge, huge splash. But um, before we really get into it though, what was your first impression of this movie? And like, what was your immediate reaction watching it? Um, so first impression was, um, I, I just, it kind of blew my mind. There's so much going on. Um, it, I didn't know, I mean, as I've said, I didn't know a lot of this. And it tells the story in such an interesting way. We had talked about, I, so I had told you, it took me a while to actually get to watching this movie. And part of it was because I, the, when I originally had planned to, by the time I got around to it, I was like, oh my God, this movie is so long. I can't do this right now. I thought, I, I thought it was just like an hour and a half mm. or maybe two hours. And it is only two hours, but Whenever I was searching it, I was getting more hits for Cocaine Cowboys 2. Oh, I don't know okay. if you found this. If you were Googling it, Cocaine Cowboys 2, which does not look super. It's like, I, the title is like Two Cocaine, Two Cowboys or something there's, like stupid. There's a, there's and, a few, but go on. Yeah. Okay, I don't, it's, I was, it was popping up more than Cocaine Cowboys. So I thought it was like over two hours. And I was like, oh my God, but it was only two hours. Yeah, um, yeah so I don't know. It, it so, was really gripping. It, the two hours kind of flew. The first, I think you told me this too, but the first 15 minutes was kind of like, okay, all right, all right. And then after that, it just like cruises through. And it's so interesting. Yeah, and uh, to your point, there is um, there's Cocaine Cowboys, which came out in 2006. Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded is mm. like the extended version with like more stuff oh, in it. It's okay. the same movie, but with like more stuff in oh, it. Oh, okay. I thought um, this was a sequel and I was like, how could there possibly be a sequel? And then there's also Cocaine Cowboys 2, Hustlin' with the Godmother, which is oh, all about Griselda Blanco. Um, and these are all documentaries made by the same guy, Billy Corman, um, who we'll talk about here in a second. Um, so what was your background with this movie? Like where, sure. when did you first see it? Uh -huh. How often do you watch it? When do you watch yeah. it? So um, I came across this movie just by accident, like it was probably like five or six years ago or something like that. I, um, I found it on Netflix because I was kind of disappointed when I recommended the movie this time because it's not free on Netflix anymore, but it was for years. And um, I found it in like, I want to say probably like 2011, 2012, something like that, like shortly after college. And um, 
I don't know what it was that attracted me to it in the first place. I think that it was just like the snappy title I thought was really cool. And so like I got into it and it just like sucked me in mm -hmm. on the first go through because I was like fascinated by so much of it. Um, and I, I guess it was like, Part of it is because, you know, as I, I may have mentioned a couple times before, is like my dad was in law enforcement for his career. And so I had heard about some of these things secondhand. He was never like involved in this uh, area. Um, like most of this was like DEA and um, local law enforcement agencies and stuff like that in Miami. Um, but I'd always been kind of interested in, in that subject. And um, through I, your dad, is that something like, because you were in Pensacola, right? Yes, Not yeah. close. So right. was that something end. that you were still very aware of? So it was something that I was aware of. Okay. Like I, I I'd learned, I'd never been to Miami until I went to college, even though, I mean, I grew up in Florida, but like the opposite end right. of the state. Um, and so like, I never like been to Miami except for like one time, not too long prior to this, watching this movie for the first time. But I was aware of like, um, you know, like the uh, different, large-scale operations that law enforcement was involved in in like the 80s and 90s whether it was in Miami or you know some situ you know other situations elsewhere um, so I was always kind of interested in that angle of it and then this um, how were you aware of large-scale uh through your dad, or through, just well, you I were mean, always like interested in large scale well, well, police like these, operations. These are not like secret operations, things like that. Right. You know what you're I mean? Just like following the, the news yeah, as a child well, you know, in like, the '80s, reading I, the, <laughs> the papers. I was on. not a conscious human human being in the '80s. I was I was not like a like a, a full fully sentient human in the '80s. Um, but no, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it was because of his career. Like I heard about some of these things, and also just from being things like because I watched the History Channel when I was a kid and stuff mm, like that. And yes. so you know, like As you know, kids do. yeah, the, <laughs> like this kid did for like sure. Like the youths do. <laughs> um, but things like um, I think Mark Bowden's book Killing Pablo was something that I was aware of. It was, my dad had it. It was about the the task force that ended up killing Pablo Escobar. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, things like that I always kind of found interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and so. When I found this, I was like, ooh, cool, let me check this out. But it got so much crazier than I ever expected. And I, I think that part of my fascination with it is that it deals with a city um, kind of living in a dystopian alternate universe for about a decade with yeah. like tons of violence, insane amounts of violence. It's like a bizarro version of Mad Max where like rules of society collapse, mm -hmm. but everybody is rich and not living in squalor. It's almost like Gotham City or something like that oh, on yeah. the beach. It's nuts. And I, I think that like the idea that this was such, that this was a real thing that happened. And when they're talking about like confiscating hundreds of pounds, thousands of pounds of cocaine, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars being deposited in the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami a year in this time. I was just so fascinated by like how this got to the scope and scale being run by basically glorified street thugs too. Mm -hmm. Like that all of all these parts together and the way that like they get into how the smugglers operated and the different oh, sophisticated that was methods. Fascinating. It's so interesting. And every and to answer your other question, like when do I watch it? How often do I watch it? I feel like I come back to this one like every year or two and just like because it's I, I, I'm I try to like reconnect with it the same way because I'm like I want it I want it to be as engrossing as it was the first time that I watched it. And I want to like revisit just like remind myself like, yeah, this is real. This is real life. These are real people that did this. Oh, um, is it as engrossing every time you watch it? I think so. Like, cause I give it a little bit of space in between, but it's just like, you know, I, I, I consume a lot of crime fiction mm. and films and things like that. But to revisit this documentary that is like 
so unbelievable that you could you would have a hard time fictionalizing it because no one would ever believe it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just I I just find it very easy to dive straight back into. Mm-hmm. One thing. So my first impression, like. I had heard of this documentary. I think maybe my brother was talking about it and watched it like his freshman year or something when he had just moved to Miami. Mm-hmm. I guess it's, you know, required viewing. Hey. But I I just, I think even just the, the title Cocaine Cowboys sounds so like, not heroic, but just... Sensational. Sensational, which this was. Mm-hmm. But this was very journalistic. Like, yes. This was very, you know, it, there are times where you're just like, oh my God, these people, like, it does look very very glitzy. These people are making a lot of money. They seem to be not, you know, they're not like what you would imagine as like these criminals. Like everyone is very, you know, they're representing, a lot of them are representing themselves Mm -hmm. in the video, Mm -hmm. in the movie, and they just seem like regular guys. And so I don't know. I, I pictured it much more kind of like not comic, but as if it came from a comic. What is the word I'm thinking? Like, uh, kind of romanticized. You know, romanticized. Romanticized. That's it. Yeah. I expected it to be much more kind of like, you know, cowboys, like mm-hmm. western. Like these guys are like out there. They're, you know, this romantic picture of these gunsling and whatever. And it is not like that at all. It's very, very. I mean, there's there's a lot of gunslinging though, and that's there the thing. Is. Like the way they open this movie with oh, like the yeah. The, let's the, talk the, about that. Yeah. I mean, let's just dive right in here because like. The, the way they open this movie with, like, the thing about the Dadeland Mall shooting in 1979, mm-hmm. which Dadeland Mall is still a very real place that I've you can there. go to. Yeah, I was like, holy yeah. shit, I've been um, there. Yeah, but there was, a, there was, like, this, there was a liquor store assassination, basically, but, like, the collateral damage, I think, was what really put that on the map, because that's kind of recognized as a start of the Miami cocaine wars, mm-hmm. right? And they just jump right in the very beginning of this documentary about how these guys just jump out with machine guns and just spray everyone in sight to kill what, two dudes or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously it became this massive story um, that kind of kick-started a really bloody and brutal period in Miami's uh, history. Um, and that phrase, cocaine cowboys, was apparently, this may be apocryphal, but the story that I heard is that it was coined by a police officer on the scene who's giving a statement to a reporter. Mm, um, it was a saloon shootout. Basically, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it, it, but you know, even more insane than, you know, what you would see in a Western movie for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's nuts. I thought that sequence in the film was especially interesting, like how they set it up. That, honestly, I was like, I don't know about this, because they set it up, it's, like they have some of the, the film, the like archival broadcast news footage, mm-hmm. and then intercut it with like a guy with a gun on a psych wall, and then a guy yeah, like yeah, there's some reenactment stuff shot. going on. It's, and I was like, is this how that's all gonna be? Like, are they gonna? It was very like kind of art housey music video, like. Mm-hmm. But that really needs History Channel documentary, yeah. right? You know, and it really did not. I, it didn't pull through the rest of the movie, except yeah. for and then yeah, the opening credits had this like very '80s like yeah. meow, and graphics where we were like mm-hmm. all crazy and neon. But yeah. after that, it was very like I don't know, very. CNN documentary, yeah. I thought. So um, a, a little bit of background about some of the people, key people involved here. Billy Corbin, the director, he has um, done several Miami and Florida-based documentaries. Um, is he, he from Miami? He is from Florida? Miami. Oh, okay. He lives in Miami. He graduated with honors from University of Miami. Um, wow. He did so. He did the Cocaine Cowboy movies. Really is required viewing. It, for yeah, UM. yeah, for real. Um, he did the ESPN Thirty for Thirty called The U, which oh, is oh, I've seen that too. The highest rated uh, ESPN documentary. Wow. 
um, okay. And yeah, I'm glad you've seen it because that's a that was one that was on my list for sure. Yeah. Um, he did another one called Square Grouper, which is about the um, the Florida coast fisherman who decided to start picking up stray bales of pot in the 70s. Um, it's another really fascinating one that I highly recommend. And he also did the ESPN 30 for 30 Broke, um, which is not specific to Miami, but it's just about um, the history of athletes blowing their entire fortune. So he's an interesting dude and still uh, still lives and works in Miami. Um, he's very uh, true hometown hero kind of a dude. Um, yeah, he's got some very specific interests. Yes, definitely. People making and losing a ton of money, you gotta, especially related to drugs. Yeah, and you got to love a guy that is that invested in his hometown. You know, I mean, yeah. that's really cool, right? Yeah. Um, and then the other uh, person from the production side that I thought was definitely worth mentioning was like the composer of the music, the score for this film was uh, Jan Hammer, mm. who was the composer for the Miami Vice TV show. Oh. So they got the guy who did the music for the show based on this to do the soundtrack for the, mm -hmm. the, for the documentary film. But um, yeah, and um, the people that appear in this film as, sub as uh, subjects of interviews are so like, Fascinating. I would, I mean, some of them are real scumbags, but like I could listen to them talk for hours. Yeah, and honestly, none of them, I mean, they are scumbags, but n I don't know. I had some real conflicting, like, I'm kind of rooting for these guys. Like, oh, that's too bad they lost their money. But it, yeah, I, I, so many of them just seemed like, like I know these dudes. Mm -hmm. Like the two white dudes from the beginning, I was like, yeah. I know these guys. Yeah. These are like, Friends of the family or whatever that, especially the one guy, Mickey. Mickey Monday, pilot, yeah. He was hilarious. He's great, yeah. He's like, he's clearly a very like moral, not even moral. He's like a, he's, he's a, like a he, lawful, he's, neutral he's, he's, he's kind a, he's of He's a libertarian guy. for sure. He's like yeah. a cartoon version of a libertarian. He really is because his, he kept, like they kept cutting to quotes of him like, well, like, yeah, they're trying to give you tequila, and like, I'm gonna fly drunk. I don't think so. Yeah, and all this stuff. very and I'm professional. Like, okay, like, yeah. all right, drug runner, like, yeah. very serious. And then just other things. I got too, 120 million dollars like, worth of coke in the back of this plane. I'm not flying yeah, high. Yeah, and you're just like, oh, man. yeah. His he's just like out of pocket dismissing this, mm -hmm. and you're like, all and the right, way he describes the way he describes the other guy, John Roberts, is like, first time I saw him, he just said he was driving a black Mercedes had drug dealer written all over it, and I was yeah. like, mm, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. He's like, that's jabroni, and he's got his like long ass ponytail. <laughs> yeah, he turns around, like, he's like on, he's on the documentary for like an hour and twenty minutes, and then he turns around and he's got this giant ponytail down to his Who butt. Knew? It's pretty funny. Oh my gosh. Oh uh, yeah. Um, and the crazy part is, is like this was done like very shortly after these guys were released from prison. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, the uh, the subjects, these guys that are being interviewed, just like when you when they first come on, I think that one of the strong points of the documentary is that it starts by talking to these guys who are kind of in like the um, romantic swashbuckling kind of side of things. Like the guy who's like, I came to Miami with $600 in my pocket and I became a millionaire in a month. And, and then it changes to 750 and 800. Yeah, I was he's, like, hmm. he's losing count of how much money he had at Which the time. Which is not yeah. a huge joke. Right. Like sure, sure, and it's then, all in your head, but. And like Mickey Monday trying to like, you know, it's like, ah, I came up with this great way for being able to dump bales of Coke in the ocean and they put a beacon on it and you just seal up and it can go out and scoop it up. Yeah, and, and it he's just, like, these Colombians, they're not doing it, right? 
right and I tell them the way to do it. And you're just like, this is a man who takes pride in his work, yeah. even if it is trafficking drugs. It's like the first third of the movie really sets it up. It's like, these guys are okay. It's like, yeah, they're, it's like we know they're drug smugglers, but like there's, they're not so bad. It's kind of fun. And then Oof. it gets into the murders. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it opens with the Dadeland shootout. And then we spend like a third of the movie just talking to these guys about how clever they were and these really legitimately interesting ways of like renting a condo over the harbor to watch where this Coast Guard is and things like that. Like that was pretty interesting. And then we start getting into like the bloodshed and like the kids getting killed and things yeah. like that. And so it's like, it really kind of puts you on the side of the um, the smugglers before it starts really getting into like, okay, well what's the cost here? Yeah. You know what I mean? And like the stacks of money they're showing and and the amazing amounts of like, you know, just excess on everything and these wild stories that they're talking about about yeah, I spent five thousand dollars in a strip club on a Tuesday. No problem. Yeah. Right. What he, he said, he had like two panthers in his house. Yeah, something like, like I that. I had a mansion. I had another house. I had two panthers. And you see yeah. a picture of him and his his girlfriend in the panther. Just With like, the panther in the bed. Yeah. Ugh. It's it's Scary. nuts. Um, but yeah, I, I I thought that was a really interesting way of setting it up. Um, yeah, and that's actually like what I wanted to talk. Oh about yeah, was please. Just the story structure of this, like. It's so, in, so you open, like you said, with Mickey Monday, John Roberts, that's like our main entrance into this. It seems like a, you know, it's not a small scale operation by mm -hmm. any means. It sort of starts that way, but you see how it grows. I thought it was so interesting seeing all the like, the legitimate businesses they had mm -hmm. to set up. The Toke Company, because like, if you get caught with a car full of Coke, then you yes, get arrested. Yes, yes. But if you caught with, get caught with a tow truck with a car full of Coke, you can just claim you didn't know. Yeah, and, exactly. Oh, and the, so and, clever. And the airstrip in Tampa, which is like Chekhov's airstrip, because mm -hmm. it comes back in the end. Like when they say when when they showed like the barn and Mickey's talking about like yeah we just cut holes in it to fit like the the stabilizer, and we'd fly. He's like they knew we, they they knew smugglers are coming from the south. So what we do is fly up the east coast almost to Georgia, turn around, come south, and land in Tampa, and nobody no one's even checking cares. from the north. Yeah, it's like. So simple and so smart. Yeah. And it's interesting that they had to do all this stuff because during that time, it seems like they could just get away with carrying it on their backs. Like, they had cops they were paying off. Yeah. They had, everyone was cool with it. They just were getting paid, so mm -hmm. they didn't care. And, but thank God they had all this on, in place because people started cracking down and they outran them for a long yeah, time. Yeah, thank God, right? But yeah, so you get into it and it's like, I mean. Yeah, I know what you like, mean. I know yeah. what you mean. But that's what this movie does. It kind of puts yeah, you on their side honestly, for a long time. And it's like, who else's side? Like, it really builds a story at the beginning to be like, this is kind of a victimless crime. Right. Everyone was doing coke. It was fine. Yeah. They're all adults now. Like, just. Because especially because and then people die. they talk about like you know how much money they're making off it like this is a high cost thing so even the people who are doing the drugs don't seem like you know nowadays we have very we have a, a much more prominent um, um, like addict narrative and things like mm -hmm. that and drug abuser narrative that's not present in this story at all it's just like these are we're just we're we're just rich assholes and we're selling to rich assholes right. and that's it coke was fine until they started killing people exactly like it yes. wasn't. It wasn't the coke, it was the like nobody in this, Colombians. No, nobody in this story dies from a drug overdose, they die from a lead overdose. Yeah, it's so you set it up with that and then open up into this whole world. Like, I don't know, the first like half hour or whatever before we really get into this, this era of the cocaine cowboys, it's so, it was so interesting watching because not really knowing where the story is going. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, I know where we are now, but Watching this, it was like, okay, this is so interesting. This is so interesting. 
these guys are really open. Mm -hmm. I know how the story ends. Mm -hmm. Nobody who didn't get caught would be this open about what's happening. Right. But it also made me wonder, like, what else was going on that they didn't get mm -hmm. caught for? Like, yeah. we're getting a lot of information because these guys have already pled guilty yeah. and done their time. What are we missing? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. statute of limitations. I don't know what it is for certain crimes, but like, I would not be surprised if legitimately, like, this is all they were doing. Because, I mean, as much money as they were making, why bother branching out? I mean, at that point, like, when Mickey Monday said he had $24 million in real estate alone, mm -hmm. that's, like, why would you bother doing anything else? Like, ride that wave until it crashes. Real, I mean, that's, I, I, it's, it's got to be. I can't and even fathom the amount of money they were making. It's that's nine. That's twenty four million, like nineteen eighty one dollars. Yeah, that's oh like a billion God. dollars. Yeah. Um, but no, seriously, like it, it's. Although this time watching it, this time watching it, I did have the question that I asked myself, which is like, at what point do you decide I've made enough money I can just disappear now? and not wait for the feds to inevitably catch up. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, it's it's stocks and bonds. Like, when yeah. do you sell out? When you're peaking? Or do you ride the wave until you can't ride it anymore? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it is. Because you do get the sense that, like, a lot of these guys were just, like, as much as they loved the money, they were thrill seekers, too. Like, Mickey Monday, sure. you don't get into that line of work unless you're a thrill seeker, right? I can't imagine any of them were conservative risk-wise. Yeah. Like, this is, even at the time when you could get a, police escort with your cocaine shipment, I don't think any of them were, were like, like... When you're in the position where you have so much cash on hand that you can just spend it like, you know, a drunken sailor on payday and still be burying trash bags of cash in your yard because you have nowhere else to put it, I, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is just me being naive and having, like, <laughs> low aspirations, but I feel like I would cash out. I, you know, you get to a certain point and it's like, not only can I still live like a king for the rest of my life, but I can also disappear mm -hmm. immediately. Yeah. That's, I mean, I say the dramatic irony of the movie is so interesting because it's like, they wouldn't be telling the story if right. the important people didn't yeah. already know about it. But, I mean, they had to have, like, they can't have been surprised that right. this is the 50-50 possibility of where it would end mm -hmm. at es best. Especially, and, like, they talked, several of the people talked about, like, how, in retrospect, this, they should have seen this coming. But that Max Mermelstein guy who flipped on, the one guy that flipped and brought, out, brought down the entire empire, mm -hmm. pretty much. Oh, yeah, and they set that up, too. But that's another thing, like, morally, like, okay, so he gets busted and mm -hmm. he's a stool pigeon, is that so he's the bad guy like but you're ratting out drug smugglers i mean he's their bad guy that's he's the thing. their it's bad like... guy and oh yeah it's an interesting mm -hmm. moral gray area that the yeah. documentary is very comfortable right. making you sit in yeah for sure because that's even the um the one day like opening up so the story opens up from the two drug smugglers into this whole operation mm -hmm. with, um, you know, the Colombians who've yeah. actually moved to Miami, Rivi, and eventually Griselda Blanco, who we never actually hear speak, because she's probably murdered. Yeah, she was released in, like, 2003, 2004, I think. Mm -hmm. But then she, like, was she was assassinated in 2012 in Medellin, Colombia, via motorcycle drive-by. Did we know that? No, because this, this movie came out in 2006, and then in 2012... Oh. She was assassinated. Yeah. Wow. And, and about that. And fun fact about. And she Griselda went back Blanco. to the city in Colombia yeah. that was. I she went back to her hometown where her family was, and she thought that she'd be safe there. Um, yeah, I don't know. Where I don't all know. of the other yeah. drug dealers that they had mentioned um, come from. 
Two fun facts. One, um, Catherine Zeta-Jones portrayed her in a Lifetime movie in January of this year. Okay, I saw, I've seen ads for that. I was just like, okay, interesting, like female drug dealer. And then as I was watching this, I was like, oh, okay, so this is an inspiration for yeah. like stories. I didn't realize she was actually, it was a biopic. Yeah, it's called, okay. called Cocaine Godmother, the Griselda oh, yes, Blanco yes. story. Okay, <laughs> um, didn't put two and two together, but I definitely um, saw which that trailer. Ca casting her in this role and not doing a uh, Charlize Theron monster makeup uh, um, um, uh, I feel like they they really glammed her up uh, compared I don't to know. Like, some of those pictures she she was a beautiful woman all right. so you know should we see a range but I don't the one picture that they kept cutting to that was like her kind of with like the hat the hat and the side angled eyes and mm -hmm. like her eyes are kind of cut to the bottom corner so Very... number one perfect for the <laughs> yes. like headshot of a drug like whatever lordess queen pen. queen yeah yes um but just i don't know i thought she looked really lovely in that picture fair enough um but fun fact number two um our friend of the show mike cushing uh -huh. his parents were neighbors of Criselda Blanco <gasps> in the 80s when she was actually killing people. Holy cow. He has a story on his own podcast, uh, Trends in Low Places, which you can check out. I don't remember which episode it was. We'll put a link. But he has a story about Criselda Blanco going to their house and bringing them cookies when they moved into the neighborhood. Oh my God, does he remember the cookies? Were they good? I don't think he was, he either was not born yet or he was brand new, I don't remember. But it was, he was... Good. They yeah. were probably yeah. laced. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You can't. Cross contamination is a thing. Oh my God, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and apparently he didn't learn about the story until much, much later. So how did they know? Like, so okay, yeah, like okay, eighties. They're living next door to this woman. Yeah. Was it like well known? They just couldn't pin it on her. Like I the think that at the time they just didn't know who she was. Okay, I don't know this exactly. Yeah, correct. I, I think that did at the, time the authorities. I believe so. I, I would assume. Did the news? What if I you would, saw your neighbor on the news as like the queen pin of so, all cocaine? I would assume that this was at a time when like law enforcement knew who she was, but they were building their case. Because mm. um, I have no idea how secret her involvement was. Okay. Um, obviously, she was out there just like putting hits on anybody who she thought Jeez. looked at her funny. Yeah. Um, this woman was a uh, psychopath, like psycho killer. Yeah. Um, they say that. Uh, she was responsible for around 200 murders. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, and, oh. Didn't, didn't give a shit about killing kids, bystanders, whatever. She was just like, kill everybody in the house. Um, and that's, um, yeah, and, and, and more to your point about like how the story unfolds, like when they finally get to this Reavy character, even he's kind of likable at the beginning. Yeah, like, the way totally. he talks, he's like, He's like, yeah, I was a bad kid, but you know, I was working at my dad's shop and doing this thing and yeah. decided to move down, you know, messed with this one guy and he said, you got a lot of balls, you should come down to Miami, blah, 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 I'll give you a job. And then it just like 100 miles an hour to um, him being involved in this thing where he's trying to do a drive-by, shooting at this guy and ends up killing a kid in the backseat of a car. And it just like, from there, I feel like the whole film just takes like, it grind, it gets to like a screeching halt and like turn and like and, and it becomes something completely different because now it's like because they spend a lot of time on this Johnny Castro um, killing, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, they really do, and it really is a turning point, at least for like the filmmakers and the narrative mm -hmm. about that's at least when Griselda like when everything goes off the rails mm -hmm. and when she stops caring whether she cared or not beforehand, mm -hmm. but like where it's evident that she doesn't care who yeah. dies or if they're a child or involved in any way, which mm -hmm. even even Reavy, I don't really think that's his, that wasn't his turn for me, because he, 
felt a lot of guilt and remorse about that. He was he said like he never would have shot if he had known the kid was in the car and stuff. But he does like at the end they kind of paint a different picture of him of being very arrogant about mm -hmm. killing people and I don't know, I feel like I held on to my sympathy for him until much later in the movie. Yeah, and that's fair, although I don't know was... how much he was mugging for the camera, you know what I mean? How much he was posturing for for PR, basically. I what, mean, the arrogant stuff or the, like, about remorse the, stuff? Yeah, the remorse in Well, yeah, I yeah. mean, I think his whole story up to a point very near the end is that he was just kind of wrong place, wrong time. Like, he was, he was a bad kid. He stole mm -hmm. cars. He stole the wrong guy's car, whatever. They liked his moxie. They liked the cut of his jib. And then, but his, he doesn't get into hits until... Mm -hmm he accidentally screws up someone else's hit. And then yeah. it's kind of, the way he tells the story is like, well, you know, it was it was his life yeah. for this other guy's, and right. this other guy's like a drug kingpin or whatever, and was disrespectful to this woman. Like, you mm. know, he was a misogynist, so. Yeah. And yeah, so it's kind of his is very like, uh, you know, I was a bad guy, but a lot of it was just like me trying to save my own skin. Mm -hmm. And then you get to a part at the end where you're like, no, was it though? Yeah, like, you killed a lot of people you though. You killed a lot of people. And uh, you don't seem to feel that bad. Yeah, I mean, he it, it's he talks about it with the same in most of it. I mean, most of it he talks about with the same level of remorse as like a kid who like, you know, like a teenager who gets caught doing graffiti like, "Oh, I didn't mean to do it, but my you know, like I don't push me into it and I didn't really know what I was doing and then, you know, one thing led to another and before you knew it I was tagging a bridge." It's like, "Okay, yeah, okay. That that's I don't know. Um you had a couple more choices in there. Yeah, and then like the one, then like the the last mur the big one at the airport where they, where they oh stabbed the guy with the bayonet. God. He was like, you know, it seemed like the reason he turned that down was not because it was like a brutal murder, but it was because of oh, the no. high risk. Absolutely, which it was extremely high risk. Like Griselda you said, that's Blanc a suicide mission. Yeah. I don't do suicide missions. Yeah, like Blanco tells him to go. He, here's a rifle bayonet. Go to the airport terminal in the middle of the day and kill this guy. Like that's. Insane. That is completely insane. That is just TBT to when you could go all the way to the airport terminal. Yeah, right. Murder people. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was wild stuff. Um, and then, like you know, we we get into the. I feel like the group that we don't get, an, for me, that we don't get enough story from, is the Centac Twenty Six guys, the people who made this task force that brought on. I feel like they kind of like you get sporadic interviews early in the film mm -hmm. and throughout the film. But then it's like their actual involvement in the whole case, it's like they just kind of swoop in and swoop out, you know what I mean? Yeah, I'm honestly, I thought that was a really interesting angle. I liked taking it from like kind of this grassroots, how it grew, mm -hmm. and then I felt like we spent a lot more time on kind of the economic mm -hmm. and social rather than the actual legal. Like, right. And I thought that was cool. Like I thought it was really interesting to see how just track the money through yeah. this whole history. Mm -hmm. I don't think we see that a lot, especially like, like you're saying, the drug narratives, we get a lot of like addict narratives mm. and crime yeah. and stuff like this. That, and this was much more like, this is what happens in a city yes. and in a community when you have drugs and you have a ton of money mm. come in at the same time. And it's amazing, like the, the they have the um, the former medical examiner for the um, for Miami who was, um, he, he was talking about how, you know, he when he was driving to work one day, he counted 26 construction cranes on the horizon. Right. And he's like, it's all it's all coke money. It's all cocaine. And it's just amazing to me how a city like how just the illegal drug trade mm -hmm. can 
be that much of a boon to a local economy, you know what I mean? Like Mercedes dealerships that aren't able to keep Mercedes in stock, like they're they're like they're run they run out of cars. Right. That's bananas. And you know and, and you know all the nightclubs and the you know and just like just the banks all the banks that opened up mm -hmm. um, and not only that but just all the businesses that were cons that all the things that were built just as a way of filtering the money yeah the, you know it, it's it's it, it's mind-blowing even after seeing the movie like three or four times that yeah. plus so that was fascinating then when it crashes and all those businesses close because yes. their primary customer their entire consumer base mm -hmm. is the coke trade yeah and then how it revitalized was basically nostalgia for the coast Miami trade. Vice. Miami Vice. And what were the other ones that they were talking about? It was um, mainly Miami Vice, I think, Miami but then Vice, also Scarface, Scarface, the movie Scarface. Yeah, um, and it was revitalized through, like, media that's covering, mm -hmm. like, you know, fictionalized stories yeah, of yeah. the drug days of Miami. It and, was wild. Yeah, and that's um, definitely something that I, I wanted to bring up was like the cultural influence, like in the mm -hmm. pop culture influence. Yeah, Miami Vice launched in 1984, ran through 1989. So like it kind of launched at more or less the peak because 84 was the year that it all came tumbling down. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the show Miami Vice for a lot of reasons, but like just the, you know, it was originally pitched at like the idea the original idea the creator of the show wrote down just had an idea and wrote down on like a cocktail napkin MTV cops <laughs> right and yeah. and it seems like at the time that like Miami culture was perfect for that concept because I feel like it kind of came up on its own and then just like the perfect place for that to be it could only really be Miami mm -hmm. at that time and that place it's just such a specific cultural touchstone that I feel like has these tendrils that have like spread all like in lots of different directions. Um, Miami is its own place, as I it, say. It is indeed. Um, but yeah, the the I, I, something about it just captured the public imagination. You know, like they talked about the 1981 Time magazine cover with the Paradise Lost and how that was a huge mm -hmm. thing that drew nationwide attention. Mm -hmm. Talking about how many murders and things like that were going because that was the main thing. Like the drug stuff, I feel like was known, but exact numbers were not known. Murders are hard to keep hidden in that way. Um, and that's what everybody was hearing about. It's yeah. just like, it was a dangerous boom town with a ton of money. Like that juxtaposition of like rampant violence and extreme wealth, mm -hmm. I think is just, there's just something about it that captures the public imagination, you know? And tourist destination. Yes. I think, you know, you look at a city like New York and that's kind of, especially, you know, back in like the 80s, mm -hmm. The grittiness was kind of part of the appeal. Even now, it kind of holds on to that nostalgia mm -hmm. of grittiness, even though it's not really that gritty anymore. Yeah. But Miami was a tourist destination. Yes. Like, that was interesting to have all the politicians come out when the coverage was coming out of, like, how bad this, this epidemic was. And then people freaking out, politicians freaking mm -hmm. out because it was gonna hurt the tourist industry. Right, yes, and you're They're just bread like, and butter. What do you do? Like, okay, you have a problem, but instead of being like, okay, we gotta solve it, they're furious that people mm -hmm. are reporting on the problem. And right, that yeah. is, seems so unique to the place. Like, mm -hmm. I'm sure, you know, politicians anywhere would be like, let's not talk about this, but, you know, they, not the wealth and the, and the, drug like rampant crime mm -hmm. the like opposition of those two things but then also the opposition of this like deep-seated community epidemic and then the tourists and the the beaches that they're trying mm -hmm. to promote as like come and visit like, yeah 
And this was an interesting point in American history also because especially like in the cities, crime rate was rising every year. Like mm -hmm. from, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but there was a period up until like 1995 when it finally broke where like it started in like the mid 70s and for like 20 years, the nationwide crime rate was basically on an upward trend. Mm -hmm. And between like the mid 80s and 1995, I think it was, it rose every single year. Mm -hmm. um, and especially in the cities, so like New York was notorious, LA, Chicago, and Miami. The difference was Miami, as you said, tourist destination. And it was like, it was like so hot and cold where it was like, it was dangerous, but it was an exciting kind of dangerous, and it was a glamorous kind of dangerous. Right. And a lot of these reviews talk about, like, they compare it to, like, Chicago during Prohibition. I feel like there is a certain level of like, romanticization yeah. of that period in American history as well. Um, but this is so specific and localized. Um, and definitely, I mean, the inspiration for the movie Scarface, which I you haven't seen all the way through, but you got an idea of it. It's like... it. it, it the whole movie hinges on that juxtaposition of like glamour and extreme violence, mm -hmm. extreme wealth and extreme violence coexisting, and it it's got a lot of problems with it. And I don't love that movie necessarily, but it's like it's a really fascinating um, kind of like uh, product of the American public's interest and, and, and fascination with what was going on in Miami at the time. And that movie came out in '83 when all this stuff was still active and not hadn't collapsed yet. Like, you know, this was before the Mermelstein flip and that caused everybody to get arrested. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, and even today, I mean, you see a lot of like the 80s neon aesthetic of like mm -hmm. the version of the 80s that never really existed, except it kind of did in Miami at this time. <laughs> like the pastel and neon, um, like nightlife. Like, you haven't seen the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling, no. right? Okay, so I feel like that movie is very based on an aesthetic that was even though it's set in LA, it's very much based on like an aesthetic that was that comes out of this like obsession with like the 1980s Miami cocaine wars. Mm. Um, and then even today, uh, less directly connected to the um, the Miami of the 80s, but what struck me this time watching this documentary was how similar it felt in terms of like things that were happening to um, Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. A mm -hmm. lot of the things, a lot of the anecdotes felt very much like they came straight out of, like, a Breaking Bad kind of a thing. Yeah. Like, the cash buried in trash bags and, like, the smuggling uh, techniques and, like, meeting with, like, the locals in Colombia and, you know, mm -hmm. the ultra-violent leader that's kind of, you know, things like this. Like, all of these things felt, like, ripped straight from, like, Breaking Bad subplots. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I mean, this, I was noticing a lot of things that just still have echoes today in general, like are still things that we're thinking about. Immigration mm -hmm, was a huge one. Mm -hmm. Immigrants and like and cops as its mm -hmm. own thing, kind of how cops are dealing with certain groups of people. That's a huge thing we're talking about now. And drug wars is something we still feel the mm -hmm. echo from. And it just seems like this is, it, it just felt like this was the essence of it. Like we talk about it in terms like now in ripples like it's mm -hmm. we're not in the middle of it the way that this was actually and this was the like distilled essence of all these problems and now we're kind of coping with them mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how to fix them within our society but they're you know 30 years old a yeah. lot older but like this you know what i mean like this yeah. is like ground zero yeah and this this was like 
I feel like the Miami of the early 80s was kind of like the worst case scenario for like a lot of people who do have concerns about illegal immigration and who like I feel like this was the worst that it ever actually got in one place at one time. You know what I mean? Like, yes, yeah. there were, crime was rampant. And But what I find interesting, though, is like, and I feel like that's the kind of thing that a lot of people maybe have, like older people may have in the back of their minds, people who like remember the reports actually coming in. Like, we watched this and it took two hours. I can't imagine what it was like to like, you know, especially if you lived in Florida or South Florida and you're turning on the news. And that one reporter, Edmund Buchanan, was talking about like, we wouldn't even make a big deal of it unless it was a quadruple homicide mm-hmm. at a certain point. Um, and I can't imagine what it would be like to see that on the news every day for years. Like, it's the same thing as, like, when you study, like, world wars mm-hmm. or wars of any kind that had, like, really high body counts. It's like, you can watch a documentary about it or read a book about it. It doesn't accurately convey the idea of, like, opening up a newspaper or turning on the TV and every day, murder, death, mm-hmm. bodies. Every, it's like, at a certain point, it's got to, like, really eat into your brain like something is seriously wrong. Um, I, I mean... We don't have to get super political, but I feel like we got to that point with mass shootings not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, true. Like, true. There was a moment where I at least couldn't keep straight what mm-hmm. shooting we were talking yeah. about because it felt like they were happening so frequently. Yeah. You were hearing about them on the news, and as soon as one would kind of happen and everyone mm-hmm. would be talking about it, it felt like days later something else would happen and you were having mm-hmm. another conversation about a whole different right. event. Right. And yeah, that's that's what that moment talk, reminded me of when they were talking about like, yeah, if, if it was less than seven bodies, yeah. like it wasn't worth right, reporting. Right, But as, as far as like the immigration, you know, looking at it from with like the relationship between immigration and crime, the ironic part is like, I think that like some people might be conflating like some people might conflate like you know they talk about the Muriel boat lift which was that something you were familiar with already no so that that I mean, was that, wild that was to a, me a, yeah that's a whole different story on its own I want to know like, that whole story because like what they just put people on a boat yes. and we were just like Ca- what like, did they just happen they came too fast that we couldn't yes. be like whoa 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 like, like thousands of people Castro just like loaded up every boat he could find with convicts um, homeless people whatever how did they get into the country though there was just so many of them like they couldn't they just you like know, you yeah. can't oh, it was a humanitarian God. crisis and and what that ended up happening was yes you had a lot of like people that I think anyone would reasonably call undesirables like criminals like mm-hmm. actual like murderers and rapists from the prisons were being shipped right across the uh, 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 across the channel in but, addition to that people who needed infrastructure like people right, who yes had nothing to support them in their own home country. How are they supposed to come to another country and build a life? And that's a different worst case scenario for a lot of people who are scared of illegal immigration. But it's like, ironically, like those people don't figure prominently into the story of the drug trade and the murders and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It's like, that was a whole separate group of people. I mean, this kind of exacerbated the entire situation in Miami overall because it Mm -hmm. became such like a public you know, public safety, public health crisis, immigrate, you know, uh, humanitarian crisis. All these things are happening in a city that's already inundated with drugs and violence mm-hmm. and smuggling and graft and corruption, things like that. So it's like, for people who were in the public sector in Miami at the time, it must have been a total nightmare scenario. Oh my God, like literally Gotham. Literally, yes. yeah, I can't even yes. imagine. But I thought the point that they were, the connection they were making was that those were the people who basically became the thugs for the yes. drug trade. Right. Yeah. I mean, like more or less, you know, people. Who I mean, were, not to put a know, one-to-one like all those people, but but right. Like, but I mean, you know, you take people, there was a supply of yeah. people who were coming from prisons and coming from you know with nothing else, mm-hmm. and those were the people who got sucked up into. It's like if the United States suddenly drugs. decided to like ship all of our like violent criminals from our prisons to a different country. That country. I mean, you've got a large population of people who are 
flushed out of prisons for okay. violent offenses, there's there's a good chance they're going to be, you know, you're going to see some recidivism. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just such a weird tangled knot that just like became such a like it's otherworld. It's like a fever dream of a. It's like a Sim City fever dream. You know what yeah. I mean? Like you cannot make that. That's what as I was watching this and knowing. This is another one of those that I know the like trapping, I know the things that clearly have now come from this, mm -hmm. like the branches. But watching this, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I yeah. get where all these stories have come from because this is all, it's all in there. Yeah. It all happened. But yeah, but you know, to, to your point earlier about, um, you know, how, as you said, as you put it, nostalgia kind of was re revitalized the city after like the, 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 the bubble burst, more or less. I mean, the Coke bubble burst. But um, I, I, nostalgia, partly, I mean, capitalizing on a crisis, maybe another way to put it, war profiteering yeah, potato, might be a way to put it. But um, I, I did find that really interesting. They only gave it a short period of, of, of coverage in the, um, in, the, in the film, but the way they said that like these derelict nightclubs and buildings, stuff like that, the Miami Vice crew would come in, art department would spruce it up, shoot their scene there, a couple days later they're gone, and boom, you got a really nice building now. Yeah, and I wonder if that story was abridged, because I did wonder, like, how are they going to get this back? Like, how how did Miami bounce back from this? And I mean, like, how did it? Was it all the film? I mean, South American business, like, a lot of major businesses have their South American hubs in right, Miami. Right, of course. But, like, what? There's a there's a middle, there's an interim yeah, period I there. Have to, I have to infer that, like, once the financiers just went to jail basically and the money dried up, mm -hmm. there was a lot of really fancy looking property for sale for like dirt cheap. Sure. And you know, sure. I mean, I, we live in Georgia where a lot of uh, like location shooting is done for um, movies and TV and stuff like that. And like, I'm sure it, at, at circa 1985, I'm guessing like right after this happened and like the dust was starting to settle, Miami was probably a location scout's dream. You know yeah. what I mean? And also, and this is something I found in my own research Mad as Max well. kind of movies were really yes. peaking. It was an apocalyptic time. Yeah. Um, and I don't remember if they covered this in the movie or if I just found it in my extra research, but like, not only was the Miami Vice show really big, but in the late 80s, it became a major like fashion shoot destination for fashion photographers. And so like, that's part of the reason why that became part of the popular aesthetic was because like in the mid to late 80s through like the early 90s, you saw tons of like magazine spread photo shoots in Miami Beach, in the in like on Brickell Avenue, and in like these nightclub districts and things like that because of all the weird architecture and neon, really interesting like palm trees and beaches and all that kind of stuff. Like again, a location scout's a dream. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So um, I guess that kind of brings us to wrap things up here. And before we did, I mean, did you have any favorite scenes or moments from this that stand out? Um, I did. I. I liked the way they treated Griselda as a character. I was gonna say she was my favorite character, but then you really change. It changes on you. She be, she goes off the rails. But she's they, a complicated figure. I mean, she she's, is, and I think they handled it really well. Honestly, I think they the whole story was handled really well. Like I, there was a lot of information. There was a lot of history. There was a lot of facets, and I think it was just it was well done. Mm -hmm. With with Blanco in particular, I mean, I, I feel like she is the closest thing that real life had to like a Scarface character. It's like very easy to like, like kind of idolize her in like the sense of being just like a really powerful woman who kind of built herself up from nothing. 
through illicit means, sure, girls got to do what a girls got to do. Yeah, but at the same men can time, do it. yeah, we can do but it. when you like back it up just a little bit, it's like, oh yeah, she was just a nasty piece of work all around. Murders, murder is really the line just here. Just like we lot can be of cool with drugs and with uh, breaking the law, but once you get to killing people, specifically children, murders, murders, public yeah. murders, child murders. Who cares? It was, yeah, this was very graphic. Mm -hmm. Also, they were not shy about showing you pictures and mm -hmm. videos and showing you the pictures again yeah. and more pictures and another picture and. This is what we did to him. He was dismembered. Here's a picture. It was it was very intense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think just overall, I'm trying to think of one specific scene. Like, do you have a scene when you're thinking of this movie that just comes to mind immediately? Um, the two in particular are the scene or the segment where they're where they're going back and forth with the interviews between like Mickey and John and Tony and like they're talking about like how much money they actually had and the insane things that they were buying. Mm -hmm. That. And then at the end, once Max flips on everybody and they're talking about like what happened on the day everybody was arrested, and like John's John's thing about being at like the radio post and like the DEA bus in and said, Are you John Roberts? We didn't think you were gonna be here today. Yeah, what are you doing, man? Yeah. You really screwed up. Yeah. Like, and then oh. the story about Mickey like being at the airstrip when they closed in and just taking off into the swamps. And he was like <laughs> he was on, on the, the lamb for, for years. Oh my years. God. That's a man who knows how to survive in the Everglades. Like the when John when John describes him as like he was a redneck, I'm like, yeah, like the, the good kind of redneck. He's yeah, like, he's like the redneck MacGyver, as I think how John yeah. described him. And I'm like, that's exactly who you want on your team Written when you're smuggling tombstone. drugs into South Florida. The redneck <laughs> MacGyver, that's who you want. That's that's a whole like little title card at the intro <laughs> of the movie. Um, the um, the Max story, how he was caught, mm -hmm. sounded exactly like the scene in Goodfellas. Like yes. There's a helicopter following him around. He's freaking out. He's mm -hmm. on the phone. It, uh, yeah, that I was like, oh, okay, yep, yep, I get where this came from. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a it's a tactic that works. I mean, like, you and know, it's a I, good story. It's a it's a wild story, and it's funny because like a lot of these guys like are not necessarily violent offenders. Like you hear these stories about like how many cops just swarm in all at one time. About these guys that, like, as far as we are aware, anyway, are not wanted for any violent crimes or anything like that. But still, it's like it just kind of speaks to like the level of preparation. It's like this is your big fish. You do not want to mess up your shot. Right. You know, you don't know who else is with them and that kind of stuff. It's um, it's that's the kind of thing that I always find kind of fascinating. It's like again, it's like the last scene in Breaking. Oh, I don't want to spoil Breaking Bad, but like any scene where there's a lot of, or let me say this: the last scene of the Blues Brothers, where like. <laughs> They're not violent offenders, but we don't want to lose them. Let's yeah. put it that way. A hundred cop cars. Um, yeah. But, but yeah. So overall, uh, good pick. Good, good. good I'm glad. I'm, I'm ecstatic that you enjoyed it as much I as you really did. I really did. Um, I love a good documentary, a good nonfiction story. I was uh, I was concerned that I might have oversold it, but I'm glad that you found it as engrossing as yeah. I do. But um, cool. So do you, do you have a review? I do. Excellent. <clears throat> I came prepared. Good. Not that I ever haven't, but <laughs> of course. here we go. Um, okay. <clears throat> Brutal and gripping. This story has drama on every level. Legal, political, personal, economic. Highly recommend for fans of Goodfellas, Scarface, or general moral ambiguity. Nice. I like that. Cool. Excellent. Well, that just about does it for Cocaine Cowboys. So now, Kari, why don't you give us a little peek at what we have to look forward to next week? So next week, I know how big of a fan you are of the odd double feature. Definitely. So I'm taking you back to Miami Ooh. to a drag club. Oh, right. With an owner 
who has to kind of take the Miami out of his life. He has to appeal to some outsiders, to some squares, okay. if you will. Okay. Kay, have you seen The Birdcage? I have not. Okay, it's great. I'm so excited. Can I tell you, though, that is one of the movies that I have the earliest memory of my parents watching for some reason. Okay. I don't know why, but... Don't give too much away. We'll talk about <laughs> it next week. But, yeah, it's... I. Hopefully you'll like it. It's, it, you know, this all, the Miami aesthetic made me think of this one, and it's one I really like. So. Come on, Ro Robin Williams, yeah. Nathan Lane, and Gene Hackman's in it, right? Yeah, okay, and yeah, Hank Azaria in one oh, of his of funniest roles, I think. Terrific. But we'll get into it next week. I'm not saying anymore. Awesome. I cannot wait. And until then, I hope you will join us. But I'm Kyle. I'm Kari. And this is K. Have You Seen? See ya. Bye.